Sometimes God and I don't agree. We get along all right most of the time. We just don't always agree. Those are lines from a preacher I've never met, from a sermon he delivered entitled, God and I Don't Always Agree. See if you relate after we read the passage we'll study this morning from Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and you have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Anyone feeling the need that we should pass the offering plate a second time? We could do so to decrease your anxiety. Rarely does anyone enjoy reading this scripture. It is not a surprise to me that when you research the passage, you find very little commentary on Ananias and Sapphira. It isn't surprising to me that the passage doesn't make it in the book called The Common Lectionary that many Christian denominations use on an annual cycle three years in a row. Ananias and Sapphira, they don't make the list. I'm not sure if I've ever studied or preached the passage in a worship service. In fact, all week I've had this intermittent headache and wondered when my colleagues said to me a few weeks ago, are you sure we want to do this story? It was wise counsel. Nobody really wants to talk about Ananias and Sapphira, the story of negative reinforcement. Give or else. I read one pastor who likened the story of Ananias and Sapphira to a cattle prod. Now, I didn't know what a cattle prod was, so now I do. A cattle prod is what ranchers use with an electric shock on the hind end or on the legs of, of cattle when they want them to move forward, or in this case, with a bull who's supposed to go out of the pen for the rodeo. They just give them a little shock so they'll move forward. One pastor said, that's what the Ananias and Sapphira story is. It's a good old shock for the Christian church. It prod them forward. Give or else. Come on. And actually, he preached a whole sermon with the cattle prod metaphor, shocking the church. Shocking the living daylights out of the church, as my father would say. 
to keep us from lying, to keep us from hoarding, to keep us from greed, to, to keep us from forgetting God owns everything already. God had to remove Ananias and Sapphira so they would not further pollute the church, some say. These are summary lines, truths we're supposed to learn from the Ananias and Sapphira story. Some of the worst theology I've ever read, by the way, surrounds this very story in Acts chapter 5. It is an unusual story for the New Testament. It certainly feels misplaced as if it crept from the Old Testament into the New Testament, doesn't it? Honestly, feel a bit misplaced on that side of the Bible. Things were going just fine, Acts chapters 1 through 4. If you've been here the last few weeks, the church is growing through the power of the Spirit, through the power of the name of Jesus. They are beginning to understand their message, their first action together, healing a lame man and taking him into the temple. Things were going well for this little community. By the way, they've yet to be called the church until today in verse 11. Church, when they have this moment. Peter and John had a little trouble after the healing from last Sabbath that we studied, but they've been released from prison. They're back with the community. They've prayed and worshiped together, and, and the Bible is clear that the community is growing, growing, that they're on track, that they're being witnesses in Jerusalem and to all of the earth. So what has happened here in chapter 5? Without warning, here comes a couple willing to participate in the community, but supposedly not mission-minded enough. What should we do with Ananias and Sapphira? Or as a favorite professor of mine always says, what, what should we allow Ananias and Sapphira to do to us? I suggest as we read the passage together that the way we read and the way we interpret the story makes all the difference. I want to read with you this morning again words I might not have read for a long time, but that I read regularly at home. For me, some of the most helpful words from Ellen White, these found in the book Selected Messages, book one, coming from page 22. I want to read with you this morning. Just just a, a little chunk, and I invite you, page 19 to 22, go home, go online, easy to find in the Ellen White archives electronically, get pages 19 to 22, print them out, and put them in the place where you study your Bible regularly. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God, like Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead. That doesn't sound like God. But God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writer of, writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not God's pen. I read those words regularly when I get to troubling stories in my scripture, reminding myself the human component of storytelling I didn't say it was wrong, by the way. I didn't say this is an error, by the way. I'm just listening to the counsel that says God is not on trial the way humans have chosen to tell the story. I keep that in mind as we move forward in the passage, and I'd like to offer you two guidelines for reading the passage. The first is simply read the passage, because oftentimes we are more attached to our interpretations of the passage than actually the text itself. Oftentimes we repeat the story without going back and reading the text. And if we read the text, and if we're careful to read what's there and what's not there, we learn. 
we learn first that it does not say God struck them dead. Did it say that? Like the Achan story in the Old Testament when God took his life and his family and his possessions? It says they fell down and died. Now, when the text is ambiguous, we ought to be a little careful, careful how we are going to interpret it. We ought not quickly jump to say God, as one preacher said, whacked them. It's a little ambiguous, which has led some people to say maybe they died of natural consequences, scared them half to death. You've had that feeling when you've been scared half to death? People in the 1912 earthquake died from a heart attack. They're scared half to death. Heard of the earthquake in China this week. My husband happens to be in China, but I didn't know where. I wasn't paying attention to his itinerary. I knew there was a huge earthquake, and I had no idea where my spouse was. Scared to death. You know that feeling in your chest? He's fine, by the way. He was up on the Great Wall and didn't feel a thing. Had no idea the terror taking place down below. So some have speculated, well, maybe they collapsed on their own. When the text is ambiguous, we ought to be very careful what we attribute to God and how we explain it. The text also doesn't say that Ananias and Sapphira were required to give all. Does it say that? It says they had full charge or full ownership or full possession of that land. It didn't say they had to surrender totally everything. In fact, I can't find anywhere in these verses and acts where anyone in the community is forced or required to give all. It seems to be voluntary. The land belonged to Annas and Sapphira. It was at their disposal to do what they wanted with it. We need to make sure we read the passage first. After we read the passage, we ought to make sure these are just good rules for always reading our Bible. Very simple. And please teach your children to read their Bibles this way and their grandchildren. Back up and read the preceding story and move forward and read what comes next. Because if we read Ananias and Sapphira that way, we learn a lot more. Ananias and Sapphira is a two-part. The, the verses just preceding, we referenced a couple of weeks ago in church, the verses just preceding is about another man who, who had a gift, a piece of land. Barnabas, remember we mentioned him? Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought all the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, the Bible says. And then the very next word is but. But there was a man, Ananias, which means generosity of God, and his wife, Sapphira, which means beautiful. But there was another couple who sold a piece of property, and they kept, kept back some of their proceeds. Each one fell down and died, the Bible said. There appears to be two different stories of generosity that sit side by side in Acts. One is authentic, one is not. One sold the land and gave the money. The other, other sold the land and pretended to give all the money. The Barnabas property and the Ananias and Sapphira property, both of them will have names on plaques in the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Donors. When the new building goes up, both of them would be recognized for their generosity in the community as families who step forward and take care of the needs. Both go through these visible signs. One is genuine and one pretends. That's what I think Luke is telling us in Acts chapter 5, stories of contrast within the community. And the, the, the church was seized with great fear after these two stories. The Bible says, 
The church has its first low moment, and it's worth pausing over together this morning very briefly when the church has its first low moment in Acts of the Apostles. What is that about? A church called together by the power of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit and through the healing capabilities and all the great miracles and acts that are about to unfold, where did the low moment come from for the Christian church? Prone to leave the God I love, we read, sang earlier in our hymn together. Here's a group supposedly on mission, on purpose, straying from the God they love. We will have to remember back to Luke because Jesus warned the disciples before he left, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, that there is one who attempts to sabotage us. Luke chapter 22, Jesus told Peter, now Peter is the one who stands in front of Ananias and Sapphira. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Peter, the one who denied Jesus the three times. Peter, who was also a victim of sabotage, who also gave in. Jesus warned Peter back in Luke 22, be careful. Satan attempts to sift through you like wheat. There is someone who attacks you and attacks the church. Jesus warned people. Jesus had gone face-to-face with Satan in the wilderness, remember? Judas had gone face-to-face with Satan and gave in. And now Ananias and Sapphira go face-to-face with Satan. And these are the first three victims, the first three casualties of war with Satan and the new church. Acts 5, 3, we read together, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? You've lied. Satan enters the church, and it's interesting to me the way Satan is portrayed to us as some force that's sort of pressing down on the church, some force outside, some, something that humans have to deal with. But when Satan enters the church, Satan enters one person at a time from the inside. I remember when, when I was growing up as a girl in the church, not liking to hear the name Satan out loud. It always bothered me when people said it, and I often sort of plugged my ears as if by hearing the name, somehow I might allow that force inside of me. It troubled me greatly, so much so that I resonated with a little girl I met years ago in Sabbath school when the leader was having the children sing, Into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And then they get to verse 2, out of my heart, out of my heart, flow out of my heart, Lord Jesus. Little child, plug her ears and shake her head. No, no, you can't make me sing those words. I won't sing Jesus out of my heart. No, 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 because Satan will come in. She didn't understand the the verse, right? A real force for the church, Satan, a real opponent. The text says Satan filled Ananias, just like the church has been filled by the Holy Spirit. It's not just a little bit of the Satan, of Satan or the devil or evil entering the heart. It's Satan and evil filling up to capacity the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. If you think, and if we, the church, has taught Sin is a human, individual problem. We learn from Ananias and Sapphira that sin has corporate and community consequences. Do you see that? The sin of one affects the many. Community, corporate consequences. And when sin enters the church, the church just becomes a little off track, a little off mission, a little off purpose. The church has less capable now of doing what God has asked the church to do because sin has entered. 
The church needs partners. That's really what the community experience is about. People who are willing to partner. I call this sort of a we're in this all together commitment. I can look at you and you and you can look back at me and we can look around and say, we're all in this thing together, this church thing. Before we had children in our home, it's one thing Kirby and I did. We'd been married, we'd been married six years and we sat together and just sort of had this eye-to-eye, face-to-face look before we bring children here. Are you in for the long haul? We actually had the conversation together and, you know, a little pinky swear. Are you in for the long haul? Are we going to be in this together? Because if, if there's any doubt, I'm not bringing children into this. I need a partner. You need a partner. Children need us in it together. And I agree, sometimes you can look at each other and make that commitment, and it doesn't always work out. But we were very intentional about sitting together and saying, we are going to be in this together, even if we have to kill each other. We are in this together. Acts chapter 5 is that kind of a looking around the room moment. Is the community in this together or not? Ananias and Sapphira pretending to be in on the commitment. Pretenders. Interesting, President Roosevelt had uh, uh, cloned a lot of phrases, coined a lot of phrases. One of them was the Ananias Club in Washington. You can read archived New York Times online that'll say, President Roosevelt added another one to the Ananias Club. By that, he meant liars. People who were pretending not telling the truth. People not being honest about things. When Satan enters the community and we become deluded and distracted, many of us oftentimes are just pretending church, pretending commitment. My time is running out this morning, and I, I need to move quickly. I, I just want to say a word about financial partners, because that's the example Acts, Acts 5 uses. I, and I'm talking about partnership now in the church on all levels. Partnerships in spirituality, partnerships in prayer, partners in, in life uh, challenges, in the walk, in the journey together. Church members are partners in every way, but in Ananias and Sapphira's story, they use just one example of financial partnership. That we are in this together, that, that somehow when we join the church, we join our bank accounts also. It's a new kind of community property. And you can look around, I can look at Benny and Linda and David and Dr. Bob and Barry. I can go all the way back and I, we can look at one another and we understand. We are financially bound in this community. It's a new challenge in the contemporary Christian church that I don't think Peter or John or Ananias or Sapphira could have anticipated a new challenge today in the Christian church and in Christianity in general because we find that culture has largely defined us, even inside Christianity. Culture has told us about net worth and created conditions where we sort of put ourselves in the center. It's the me culture. It's the consumer culture. And Christians often come to the church now instead of worshipers as shoppers and consumers and looking to see what we can get for our charitable dollar. Where, what will you do with it? 
How, how far will it go? How accountable will you be with my dollar? Show me what I can get, and, and what do you do around this church? And let me decide if I like what this church is about or if I don't. If I like the pastoral staff, or, if I, or I'm not talking about the Calamesa church. We can just choose some other church to evaluate this morning, right? If I like their music, if I like their staff, if I like their school, if, I, if there are people there who haven't offended me, we're in a new era where people approach the church with their charitable dollar like a consumer. Besides the church, then we have all of our favorite ministries we love, the Quiet Hour and Faith for Today and 3ABN and Hope TV and the Media Center and ASI and ADRA and prison ministries and let's not forget World Vision and all the under, other wonderful organizations outside the denomination your academy, the college, your alma mater. Everyone, everyone wants to be your financial partner. It's a new challenge in Christianity, the Christian church, the Adventist church, where faith partners, financial partners have a choice where they're going to lay their gift at the feet of what ministry? The local church was the first faith partner that ever existed in the Bible long before the invention of such language, by the way, the community understood, first and foremost, we are in this together. Financial partners, yes. Financial partnering is not a spiritual gift. Some have been given and some don't have. Financial partnering is not for a few who are generous or a few who just seem to enjoy it. Financial partnering is a commitment we all sign on to when we join the community, so that when Ananias and Sapphira pretended or lied, you know, they never had to offer all of the proceeds from that land. They simply needed to be honest about their commitment. They simply needed to state carefully and honestly what kind of a commitment they were making back to the church. That is, for me, one of the precious reasons why I'm in the church is being in it with other people, Just looking around and realizing we all have a goal together. When we went a few weeks ago to the pre-session meeting, we have a dozen delegates from this church that have been assigned to go do the work, the business of our regional church here in Southern California. And we went last week, week, yeah, week before, to a little what they called pre-session meeting in the Chinese church. Here we are. These are your church members at work for you. Where issues come to the floor, the most, open, uh, the most interesting time of the entire two and a half hours is when open agendas come at the very end. And anybody in any church in all of our 166 churches in our conference can stand up at a microphone and tell you what they think we ought to talk about in October when we get to our big meeting together with, with over 1,000 people over there at the La Sierra Church. And somebody stands up at the mic and says, I want to make a motion that no Adventist church is ever rented to a Sunday church. That's real, by the way. They would like us to vote yes on that and take it to the constituency session. Somebody else stands up and says, I would like to vote, make a motion that the conference office is always open on Fridays. What is it with you people that you close on Friday when the rest of us are off work? Someone makes a motion. So we're voting, yes or no. Do we think this is what the church ought to talk about when we gather in October, all of us together? By the way, that motion came around a second time when it got voted down. Then the guy was very clever and he tried to rewrite it and it got back up at the microphone voted it down again. Someone stood up to the microphone and said, I would like to make a motion that all pastors go part-time in this conference. 
that we hire them all part-time, we'll have twice as many pastors. We'll get twice as much work. And we're all doing what Janelle Fairhurst is doing. Is this for real? The most beautiful thing about all of that is that we're sitting together and that we have this sort of we're in this together mentality and commitment going on. Whatever crazy stuff came to the microphone, I'm doing it with 12 of us who care to take their time and walk over and do the business of the church and, and stand up with an equal, full, honest commitment. Does the church matter to you? It's really what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. Are you committed to the church? Do, do your finances reveal and tell that story? Are you happy with the church? If you are not, there is more than one option. One option is that people walk away. But I am the testimony for the other option. For when I attended, we attended one of these meetings years ago, Kirby and I, we were ready to walk away from our church when we saw our church in business. And we thought, we don't like this. We don't want to be a part of this. I think we'll take my money somewhere else. I think I'll take my energy and my resources and my gifts and my skill set somewhere else. But we sat down and made a commitment that day. And I invite you to do the same thing if you're teetering with the church and you're wondering if the church is really on target, on mission, on track, doing what it ought to be. Is it spending its money the way it ought to spend its money? Rather than write the church off, get out the tithe envelope. Write out your check in good faith that God will take care of those resources and then roll up your sleeves and get busy with the rest of us. Make this church what God wants it to be. Honestly. On purpose. That's the church. Amen. Hello? Okay. Um, as children come in, I just want to say that this is the last performance of the Children's Choir for this year. So um, we appreciate all the support that the church family has given us. And um, a brief little vignette about the song we're singing today, Softly and Tenderly. Maybe some of you were not aware, but this is actually written by um, Mr. Will L. Thompson. And he was born in Ohio. And he went to Boston Music School, and he also studied in Germany. But the familiar hymn that we all know was written in, in the 1800s. And I don't know if you were familiar with that. I wasn't quite so familiar that the hymn was so old. <laughs> so it wasn't even contemporary when my parents were living. <laughs> so, um, but the second arrangement you will hear was written in the 1970s uh, sometime. I'd like to thank Earl for singing with us. Uh, today and for the soloist that will be uh, performing with us also. So. Okay. And since uh, I will say the memory verse today, and because I'm not a child, I will read it. It was hard for me to memorize. Our memory verse today is from the parable of the lost son in Luke 15. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Let us have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Oh, 
be dismissed in the name of the God who is calling. Amen.